This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm talking today with Mark Hennick. Mark is a Toronto-based mental health advocate and consultant. He's worked as a frontline clinician, and he was the youngest ever board director for the Mental Health Commission of Canada. In his 2013 TEDx talk called Why We Choose Suicide, Mark talks candidly about his suicide attempt as a teen and the stranger that pulled him to safety. It's one of the most watched TEDx talks in the world with over six and a half million views. Mark is also the author of a new book, So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience about his childhood and teen years in Nova Scotia and his battle with anxiety and depression. It's a powerful and at times heartbreaking read. Mark, welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thanks for having me, Marianne. So in your TEDx talk, you say that, uh, this is a quote from this, people are eager to talk about mental health and suicide as long as it's behind closed doors and in hushed tones. Now, that was in 2013. Do you think that people are more open to talking about suicide and mental health challenges than they were when you gave the talk? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I think that people, generally speaking, are more open, uh, not only about suicide and difficult issues like that, but uh, about mental health more generally. Uh, That said, however, I think that we've done a really good job in the last several years of raising mental health awareness. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of raising mental health literacy, uh, so a bit more of a sophisticated understanding of how mental health and mental illnesses work. Uh, And I think we still have an even further way to go yet in terms of actually fixing the service systems uh, that are supposed to be helping people. So we've been encouraging people to reach out for help. And tragically, I think too many people are finding out that when they reach out, that there's nobody there to reach back or the person who reaches back doesn't reach back with the type of supports and services that they need. So I think we've come a long way in, in uh, uh, scratching the surface and raising public awareness, but we still have a long way to go in actually making meaningful change. I want to ask you about the book, um, which I finished reading late last night. Um And I think I had dreams about it all night long. You know, you you describe in very vivid detail how your anxiety started when you were in grade two. Your parents had separated. Your mom had moved on to another relationship. You were struggling in school. What was it like to revisit these these sort of painful moments when writing the book? Yeah, you know, I think I'd been kind of nipping at the edges of these memories all my life. I mean, we are... Uh, our memories. That, that's what our whole identity is. And I'd been talking for a few years about a number of stories. You know, I had done the TED Talk uh, by the time I, I started to think about the book. And one of the responses that I got, probably one of the biggest responses that I got from uh, doing the TED Talk, because it was seen by millions of people, was, well, what happened next? You know, this stranger in the light brown jacket, as I came to know him, uh, saved my life on the bridge that night. That was one of the stories that I told in the TED Talk. Uh, a little bit after that, I actually found out who that man was and and reconnected with him. And that was all over television, too. But I started to feel like uh, people thought that that was all there was to my story, was that there's this kid who tried to jump off a bridge one night, when really I wanted people to understand that there was a lot that came before that. I didn't become suicidal overnight. And, you know, I, in my 16-minute TED Talk, I tried to capture a little bit of that essence. You know, I told two stories, one that was one of my first um, expressions of, of my suicidality and then that bridge attempt, which ended up being the last. 
Um, but I still feel like it didn't really capture the context. And if there's anything we know about how to talk about suicide in public ways, you know, people are still really nervous about that. There's all these stigmas around giving people the idea to go out and do it as though they had never thought of it before, which doesn't isn't the case. Um, the most effective way to talk about suicide is to do it in context and to give the background and you're not sensationalizing or, or um, romanticizing the, the actions themselves, but you're trying to make them make sense. And I realized when I got the, the, um, uh, the book deal that I didn't fully understand that yet in myself. Uh, and it turned out that it wasn't the type of thing that I could just write off the side of my desk. I was working at that time in a you know high high profile role with a national mental health charity, and I tried that, <laughs> writing it on weekends and evenings, and that just wasn't my style. If I'm if I'm going to do something, I have to be all in on it. So I ended up leaving that job and taking the plunge into the world of following my passion to write this book, and <laughs> struggled for a long time, of course, uh, with the reality of what that meant. Uh, and I ended up going away to a Trappist monastery in the woods, uh, and I lived there for more than a month to try to crank out this first draft. I went with a with a rough outline and with all my medical records. And I, I said, if I'm going to do this, I have to live with this a story again. I have to relive with it again. Uh, and that's what I did. I went there and I wrote uh, probably 10 to 12 hours a day, every single day. I, I lived with this story. I had a, a printed out copy and every all the spots where – uh, I hadn't finished the chapters, which was most of it. I don't think I only – I went with a uh, an outline of each chapter and that was it. Uh, so I filled in the rest of how many pages I thought should be in the in each chapter with blank pages. So I had this stack of 90 percent blank pages and I set it next to my bed, uh, this little tiny cot that I was sleeping in at this monastery cell. Uh, so I could literally sleep with the book and live with the book every single day and then I would longhand write notes on the blank pages to try to fill it out. And I think in doing that, you know, I wouldn't have been able to access especially the really difficult stuff had I not done it that way, gone away and just went fully into it uh, and, and couldn't run away. You know, I had to do it in a safe place that I couldn't run away from it anymore. I couldn't uh, uh, escape it. And when I did that, I unlocked memories that I didn't even know were there. And what was fascinating about that was that when I left the monastery – uh, it's like my mind just tucked some of those memories back away again. It's like I cracked open my mind, uh, fiddled with all the stuff that was in there and then left and put away most of it again. So, I, you know, I, I think that's where the, the authenticity of the book came from, that that's the only way that I could do this properly uh, was to go deep into it, experience it again. And, and the beautiful thing of that was that I was able to finally, I think, find the narrative arc in my own story, right, to be able to find – the through line in my own story. And, and I think that's what all the healthcare providers uh, over the years uh, had failed to see was that there was a bigger story happening here. It wasn't just um, attempt by attempt or struggle by struggle, that it was all interconnected. And that's what I'm thankful to have been able to discover. Was it painful? I mean, were there, were there, you know, you, you, you experienced a lot as a child um, and as a teen and was it, painful to it was painful to read some of it so was it painful to go back and sort of live it again it was uh, at, at certain moments i think there were pieces of it that i approached out of necessity like a story uh, like i needed to just tell it as it was and that's what i did there were parts where i learned so much about my process because before before writing this i didn't have a process i wasn't a writer i still don't really think of myself as a writer even though i wrote a book but um 
I learned so much about my writing process wherein I'd be uh, writing something uh, and it was – and sometimes it would just flow from me. Like it was just just coming and I, it was – I almost said uh, that the book was writing me at some points because it just happened. And then there were other parts where I knew what was logically supposed to come next. I had access to these really painful memories or these difficult periods and I knew that that's what I had to write. But then I would watch myself and then suddenly I'd, my body would get itchier or I'd have to go to the bathroom more often or I would just not be able to focus. And there was nothing else to do. I'm in the woods at a monastery. What else am I going to do but face this? Uh, but it was it was such a, um, a really wonderful uh, exercise in being gentle with myself and realizing, you know what, I'm, I, I know what I'm doing here psychologically. I don't want to write this. I'm avoiding it. But that's okay. Get up and go to the bathroom 20 times if you need to, but then sit back down and write it one sentence at a time if you have to. And, and that's what I did. And that's why I'm so thankful to my editors too. I had two of them who worked on this book with me. Um, I think I sent, ended up sending that first draft to my editor uh, and it was twice as long as what he originally wanted. <laughs> and I, I believe my words to him were something to the effect of here's a big mountain of rock. Uh, good luck carving it into a book. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I, I just wanted to put it all on the page and then figure out the rest later. So that's what we did. You, you talk in the book about, you know, a lot of mounting anxiety, you know, as I said, that started in, you know, grade two about triggers and, and a lot of times feeling there really wasn't anybody that you could talk to about this or that the people around you expected you to just snap out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you talk about when you had the injury from the car accident and, and you felt more seen because you were on crutches. Um, do you think this is common with people who are experiencing mental health struggles that they're, they're not, they feel they're not seen or believed because people don't see a physical injury? Yeah, I mean, I think that's almost the default in some ways, tragically. Uh, whether a person has a mental illness or not, I think that we um, treat our attention that we pay to people as one of our most valuable resources. And we resent in some ways, I think, when people try to grab our attention or steal our attention uh, without our inviting them to do so. So when people are uh, extremely emotional uh, and they're going through a really hard time, that demands our attention, that demands our empathy. And I think that depending on how people are, are – how comfortable people are with their own emotions, that really dictates how willingly and how freely uh, they're going to give that a time and attention and empathy away to somebody else who needs it. It's a really – uh, vulnerable experience to struggle, obviously. But the other side of vulnerability is that it's incredibly vulnerable to help too. You have to, how do you, you know, how do you keep your heart open in hell? You see somebody struggling, you see somebody suffering. And I think most of us shut down and don't want to deal with that because of our stuff, not because of theirs. It's because we're not ready to help for whatever reason, or we're scared of what they're going through. We're afraid of death. Of course we are. You know, I, I think that Part, part of what I've learned through this is that um, often parents uh, say that they didn't see it coming, such a tragedy like suicide when, when their child dies, because of course, why would they want to see that coming? I'm a parent now. I can't – we psychologically block out these kinds of worst case scenarios. So of course they couldn't see their kids struggling. It was a, it was a psychological defense mechanism, an adaptation. So that's why I think it's necessary uh, to train people, especially who have 
you know, one degree of distance uh, in terms of the, the emotional relationship from the ground zero person uh, or the or the person who's struggling most acutely, people like teachers and doctors and and uh, paraprofessionals, all kinds of people in, in of that sort, we need to train them on how to actually help people in a more connected way. How do you how do you see people uh, without your own stuff in the way? And then how do you help them to feel seen? Ultimately, I think that's what the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved me during my suicide attempt on the bridge, that's what he did in his own small way uh, was to see me, to connect with me. He wasn't hiding behind diagnostic labels or medications or th- the psychotherapeutic modalities or stigma, uh, calling me crazy or, or psycho or nuts or anything like that or a failure or any of the things that I already felt. Uh, he just was willing bravely uh, to be with my suffering, to to witness my suffering. And I think that's what built the connection most strongly. I really like in the book how you talk about resilience. It's, I mean, it's in the title of the book, but you talk about it quite a lot and you say resilience is a muscle. I think mine had been exhausted or atrophied or never fully developed in a functional and helpful way in the first place. And then later you say resilience is a muscle, but so is self-destruction. Being suicidal was starting to feel normal to me. Um, resilience is something that we're you know, as parents, we're, we're, we're hearing this word a lot in the way that we raise our children, building resilience, building resilience. How do you think you build resilience? Well, I can tell you how you don't build resilience. You don't build resilience by avoiding struggle. Resilience is built through struggle. And kids are hardwired for struggle. We know this. It's, you know, if your plan is to only be happy and uh, to have no bad days and good vibes only, well, that's actually called toxic positivity. Uh, That doesn't help. That's not how you build resilience by sheltering yourself uh, or by avoiding everything that makes you uncomfortable. Resilience is built uh, by resting, recharging, and repeating. You have to rest when you're exhausted. You have to recharge and engage your self-care and heal And then you have to do it again. You have to tax yourself again. You have to push yourself again, get uncomfortable again. That's how you learn. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not learning. You're atrophying. And and I saw this in my own anxiety disorder, and I saw this as a working as a clinician as well. Um, If you avoid the things that cause you pain, they just get more painful. If you avoid the things that you're anxious of, that anxiety just generalizes further to other things until eventually you're completely functionally impaired by your – you're just a big ball of neuroses uh, that have been unprocessed and and undealt with. That's not to say you have to overanalyze every little thing in your life, uh, but you do have to do the work. And I think that we've fallen – you know, to, to go back to one of your earlier questions um, in the mental health awareness and advocacy space into believing that someday there will be uh, some biomedical advance. You'll be able to take an essentially magic pill or find the magic therapist uh, or have somebody else take all this pain away from you, that that there's this objective uh, medical illness that you have, like a cold or a flu or an infection, and you'll just be able to cure it. Well, that's not what this is. That's not mental illnesses aren't the same as physical illnesses. They, of course, deserve uh, all of the same respect and equity uh, as any physical illness. But they are scientifically and, and medically different in terms of how we need to treat them. You can't fix your cancer with empathy. 
you can actually go a long way toward fixing your mental illness with empathy, uh, regardless of what's happening in your brain. And, and, you know, I want to be clear, medication helped me, psychotherapy helped me, and those things should be more available to those who need them. But we need a much uh, more targeted approach in how we actually help people, and we have to have a more holistic approach in how we help people. I say several times in the book, nothing changes if nothing changes. I can go into the hospital and feel pretty good for a little while, but then go back to the real world, where, which is imperfect and messy and painful, and I would decline pretty quickly. It wasn't a coincidence that every time uh, I, my mother and I would move out of our home uh, that I would get a little bit better. And then we'd go back and I'd get a whole lot worse. That wasn't a coincidence. Circumstance and situation plays a lot into our mental health. And we need to appreciate that too, I think. So after you attempted suicide, and you, this wasn't the first time, but the last time you attempted suicide and you were you know, pulled to safety um, by the man in the brown jacket, you, you, after this time, you, you eventually you thrived. Why do you think that you thrived this time? I think the key moment for me, and I'm always careful to qualify this for people, that it wasn't a sudden – this isn't a redemption story. <laughs> like it's not a, a sudden uh, hallelujah, everything is better kind of moment and it, it wasn't even a, a, a quick thing at all. I didn't realize that I was recovering until more than a decade later um, and that's the funny thing about recovery is that you don't realize how far you've come until you're forced to look back. And really partly in writing the book and, and partly through the loss of my mother, um, I realized that the, the, the key moment for me or the pivotal moment for me was when I was on that bridge and that stranger in the light brown jacket was standing behind me uh, ready and, and then eventually did reach out and grab me when I let go. But I let go because I heard another uh, stranger who was standing on the sidelines who had shouted out to me for me to jump and called me a coward. And – I think that after the stranger in the light brown jacket saved my life after I had let go and pulled me back over the railing and I was sent back to the hospital again. They kept me I think for 24 hours and I was discharged without any real meaningful discharge planning. They just told me to call my psychiatrist and make an appointment with him whenever he was available. Nobody even came to pick me up at the hospital that time because by that time I had just become a frequent flyer, you know, one of the people who the more help they need, the less help they get. But what did shift in me was this image of these two complete strangers who were both observing the exact same situation unfolding in front of them. I'm just going to hold for a second. I'm getting a drill. So what I did think changed for me that night was I was stuck with this image of these two strangers, one who stood on the sidelines and one who had my back. And they were both watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them, but they had two very different responses. And the more I thought about that, I realized, you know, I could have a different response to my circumstance as well. And when I started – when I realized, I think, that I could be like the stranger who had other people's backs instead of like the stranger who stood on the sidelines, I think it started to, to cultivate a, a sense of purpose in me. And I'm not the type of person who believes, at least anymore, that your purpose is found as though you had lost it on the side of the road somewhere or it was out there waiting for you. Um, but rather that you build your sense of purpose. And I think that was the very early seeds for me of a sense of purpose and – when I had that and started to open up and then advocate for mental health awareness and reach out to others, and I think that's really when my recovery started, when I had a reason to live, when I had a clear direction to go in. I had something to do that made me feel worthwhile. Um, and then, you know, over the years of, of doing that, and I think the positive feedback loops that came with that, every time I opened up, it turned out other people wanted to open up too. They just 
I hadn't had anybody ask. And so when, when you ask the right questions, people will give you different answers. And um, I think that over the next uh, uh, 10 to, to 15 years, I, I really, um, my, my advocacy was inextricably linked with my recovery. But it all started in that moment of, of the very early building blocks of, of, uh, of creating a purpose. I mean, as a kid, you were this quiet kid and you were keeping a lot of things to yourself. And it sounds like I felt this when I read the book is like you started talking. And once you started talking, you just haven't stopped. And that has been, like you said, key to some of your recovery in all of this was just to keep talking. Many an interviewer who has interviewed me would say the exact same thing. He just starts talking and he doesn't stop. Um, but it's true. And, and this is where I think um, the the feedback loops come in on the negative side too, right? You're depressed, so you you just neurologically and psychologically scan the world for uh, information that reinforces your depression, uh, and so you just keep spiraling down and down and down because you're sad. You look around the world for things that are sad, which makes you more sad, so you get sadder, right? That at a very basic level, that's how it works. But it works on the other side too, right? When you start to find reasons to be hopeful or build reasons to be hopeful and resilient, that's what you start to look for too. And that, that's true for gratitude. That's true for joy. It's true for love. Um, that it's not enough to want to kill the bad parts of yourself. It's not enough to kill the bad thoughts. You have to plant good thoughts too. You know, we can't extinguish our depression from, to use the psychological conditioning model, we can't just erase it from our brain or from our mind. But what we can do is build new pathways, uh, build new, uh, cultivate new ways of thinking that then overpower those old unhelpful ways of thinking. And I think that's really the key to happiness and, and recovery. It's not you know, we can reduce the negative stuff and the bad stuff, but really we need to replace it with something better. You know, you, you've really seen it all, been through it all, you know, a psychiatric ward at, you know, at 14, um, you know, medication, seizures, you know, the medical system. You know, how do you think all of that has had an impact in the work that you've done since? We know that one of the most effective ways to break down stigma in mental health is something called contact-based education. So when you come into contact with somebody who's been there, that's far more effective than, you know, sitting through a, a video presentation by a professor uh, who, take, who talks about, you know, all the academic ways to uh, break down stigma or all the statistics uh, that we know. That's fine. That serves a role. But really, it turns out when you actually get to know somebody who's been through all that stuff, that's what, what uh, moves the needle. That's what makes a difference. So I think for me, the way that I was able to learn more about mental health and break down my own self-stigma was through all of these experiences, you know, being on a psych ward and meeting the most interesting people, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, experiencing the system firsthand, not as a, as a hypothetical, but as a very real experience. And then much, much later, I think, learning how to take a little bit of distance from that and to observe it and to choose to use it as lessons uh, rather than to be a victim of circumstance. I, I think all of those pieces of my, my experience, you know, I, I started to realize that 
Um, my life has happened for me, not to me. And that's a fundamental mind shift change. Uh, again, that helps to add rocket fuel to your recovery when you realize that everything you've experienced has been a lesson, or at least you can you can choose to use it as such. And that's part of the whole idea of acceptance and change, that I might not like what happened to me. I, w- I might wish that it didn't happen uh, and that I, I wish it would never happen to anybody else, uh, but it did. Uh, and I have to accept that because only when I accept it can I hold it lightly, learn from it, and let it go. So I, I think that's a lifelong um, mission of mine, and it's not one that causes me any grief, you know, to know that I, I might relapse again. Sure, I've relapsed lots of times before, but I've also recovered lots of times before too. Uh, I think that's just life. Uh, and and when you um, come to terms with that, it really opens up a, a beautiful um, – exciting new way of love moving through the world. So you're, you're married now, you have children. Um, how, how do you take care of your mental health on a, on a daily basis? What do you do when you're having dark moments and dark days? I once heard, um, you know, I, I have a, a, a rather eclectic spiritual um, life. <laughs> and by that, I mean, it's included a lot of influences, name, namely my uh, ravaging guilt of Irish Catholicism, but <laughs> I, I think, but I've taken a lot of good from that too. And, and part of it, um, I, uh, I think part of my, my spiritual practice has helped my mental health has been this idea um, that Ram Das talked a lot about it, this idea to learn to love your dark thoughts, uh, that, that you are not your thoughts, your feelings are not facts, they're just data points. Uh, and you can love them because they can they can do good for you. They can give you good information. You know, if if you're having a negative reaction to a certain circumstance, maybe it's a warning sign or maybe it's a, a signal of something I need to work on. So I'm always fascinated by, you know, if I have a powerful emotional reaction to something, uh, being able to step back and say, oh, that's interesting. What's what's going on there inside me or or where am I right now that, uh, that that's happening to me? And so I think it's really opened up. Uh, my current self-care practice has really opened up a whole wonderful world of not only self-exploration but content, stuff that I can work with, you know, whether it's in writing or 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 my just everyday life of, of uh, loving life and loving my experiences with my kids and, and with my wife. And, you know, I think that's what helps all of us to be more empathetic, you know, to, to see my um, seven-year-old. Uh, going on on whatever little trip, mental trip it is that he is, that he is having a tantrum or doing something really difficult, it helps me to not shut down and say don't do that, but rather that must be really hard for him because I've been through that too. I know what it's like to have a tantrum. <laughs> I still have little tantrums inside, uh, and that's okay too. So. What he needs right now is for me to be present with him. Uh, and that's part of my self-care practice is not falling down the rabbit hole of getting angry with myself or anybody else, not judging myself or anybody else as best I can anyway, uh, and then learning from it and being present and ideally still every single day trying to be like that stranger in the light brown jacket who had my back, who reached out for me and who really saw me. I think that's part of my, my own self-care practice every day is to see myself and what I need and, and to meet myself where I am. There are almost 17,000 comments under your TEDx talk video. I don't know. Do you ever go and read them? 
I don't. Um, I did very early on. Uh, and I learned very early on that one of the worst things you can do is read the YouTube comments on anything. Uh, so, so I don't. <laughs> can I read you one? I, I suppose so, yes. So this was posted about a year ago. Um, and this person says, every time I'm contemplating suicide, I watch this talk. And I've watched it so many times. I was suicidal for the better part of six years. And as of now, I haven't been in almost seven months. Anyone who sees this comment and feels like not existing anymore, I'm sorry you feel like this. I promise that you're enough. And I hope someday you can see it. Wow. That's beautiful. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about here, right, is is not only having the learning the insight to see your own experience and, and to have the broader view of it, but then to share that with others. You know, that's that's the message of hope that people need, that when you're in it, you're in it. You can't always see that you're in it, in, in the darkness, that is, because it's so dark. But then I think it's incumbent on us as people who have lived through it uh, to go back into the cave in some ways or at least reflect back into the cave what it's like on the outside. So I'm so grateful to that person for sharing that. That's that's beautiful. So you um, are hosting, I think it's two different podcasts. I am. You know, you've, you've I don't know, recorded, I can't even count how many episodes. Um, you interview celebrities and public figures about mental health. So we're talking artists and Olympic athletes, healthcare workers. What have you learned? I mean, certainly not just one thing. But, I mean, is there something that's really resonated for you in talking with all of these people? Yeah, the through line, and this is – there's a number of reasons why my book is called So-Called Normal. Um, And one of the prominent ones was that I've talked to such a wide range of people uh, on both my podcasts, the So-Called Normal podcast, which has the same name as the book, and my Living Well podcast as well from Morneau Chappelle. Um, But the common thread has always been – that all of these people have been through many of the same struggles that I myself have been through uh, and that others that I've talked to over the years too, that many of us, I think, are striving for this uh, this perfect version of normal. I wish I, – I spent most of my life wishing to be like those people who didn't have mental illnesses or who didn't have these traumas or struggles or whatever – and I've quickly realized that there is no normal, that there, that everybody is just trying to figure it out as they go. And whether I am, you know, sitting at Glenn Close's kitchen table uh, or in Rosie O'Donnell's art room in her basement uh, or just talking to somebody who, who nobody has ever heard of, uh, who is living with many of the same struggles that I have, that were all so common, that we're all so – we all have so much in common and have been through so much together – and I think that's that's almost startling for people who are currently in it and you feel so deep in your bones that nobody gets me, that nobody knows what this is like. And sure, nobody might not know your very specific instance, um, but people actually do have a good sense of a good portion of what that emotion is like, even apart from the you know little particulars of your situation. People have a lot more in common in their in their vulnerability, I think, than we appreciate. So – I think that's what I learned in talking to so many people. Also, one of the big motivations of doing the podcast to begin with was that I was sick of hearing my own voice and, <laughs> and telling my own stories over and over. And it's, gr- it's a great place to actually get to that place too uh, and that I wanted to, to provide a platform for others as well. So that's what we've been, been doing and that's what I hope to continue doing uh, through this phase of my life. What is making you feel hopeful or optimistic right now? You know, I think – Especially going through 2020, 
uh, an unprecedented year of isolation, of challenge, of uh, change. Um, I'm heartened to see how it's brought people back in touch with who they really are in some ways. And that's not always easy. Sometimes you delve into, uh, because you're forced to, into yourself and you don't like what you find there. Um, but that's a good thing too. Sometimes we need to face uh, not just our inner difficulties and the parts of ourselves that we'd rather not face, but there's also those other parts of ourselves of spending more time with our family and and doing more of the things that that we love, um, being able to to uh, understand ourselves in a deeper way. You know, I'm an introvert anyway. I, I don't think many extroverts go and live at monasteries <laughs> in silence for for weeks and weeks on end. Um, but I think that that's a, a necessary part. It's only when you're in that silence. It's only when you're alone in some ways that you can really hear yourself. Uh, and I think the, you know, the last, uh, last year really gave us a chance to do that. So I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, it's given us uh, more information than ever before uh, how important social connection is for building our mental health. That it's, yes, obviously our mental health and mental illnesses are in our brain, but everything is in our brain. We can't have an experience that doesn't go through our brain. That's what it means to be human. Um, but there's so much more than that, that you're not just neurologically broken or deficient if you have a mental illness. You're not different from anybody else. Um, that our social circumstances and our psychological makeup are just as important, if not more important, than our, our genetic or our neurological makeup. And I think that people are, are uh, more understanding of that now than they ever have been. And, and that gives me reason to hope because it, it helps people to understand what really the core components of good mental health are. It's good, good biological and physical health, yes, but also good social health and good psychological health and uh, I think that can really help to to reform the mental health system in a meaningful way if we if we finally get that. Your book is called So-Called Normal. It's available in stores now. Thank you for your time today, Mark. I really appreciate you speaking to me. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.